This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. For those trying to resist the illogicalities of the post-truth world, the idea of rational decision-making is perhaps more important than ever. But the challenge to rationality doesn't just come from social media-driven myths becoming accepted truths. There are also the questions of bias and randomness in decision-making. And these have been studied by my guest today. Olivia Siboni is Professor of Strategy at HEC Paris and an Associate Fellow of the Said Business School in Oxford University. Previously, He spent 25 years with McKinsey & Company in France and the US, where he was a senior partner. So he's done it, and he's thought about it, and he's written about it. He's co-authored a book with Kassar Sunstein, as in Nudge Theory, and Daniel Kahneman, as in Nobel Prize winning economist. Uh, The book is called Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment, and uh, Professor Siboney, welcome. Thank you for having me. And I think, could you start with bias. What is bias? Can you give some examples of bias? Oh, we all know about bias. Uh, Bias is a mistake that we make in a predictable direction. So if, for instance, you are making plans, we know from a lot of data that you will have a tendency to be a bit over-optimistic in your plans and to uh, expect that things will take less time than they will actually take and cost less than they will actually cost. We know, for instance, that If you are exposed to data that is especially visible and salient, you will tend to overweight that data compared to other data, which is less striking. So these are mistakes that we we can predict that the majority of people will make the majority of the time. And that's that's why they're called biases. They actually create a deviation from the correct answer in a predictable direction. Can you give an example? If, for instance, let's take a business example. If, for instance, you are making an acquisition, we know from a lot of data that companies that make acquisitions will tend to overestimate the synergies and to underestimate the difficulty of capturing the the synergies and the time it will take to actually capture them. So we, we can predict, it's not going to be true every time, but we can make a fairly confident prediction that people who are setting the price that they're willing to pay for an acquisition will tend to overpay more often than they will actually underpay. That's an example. There are many, many examples of biases. This is just an easy one. Yeah, and, and one, that, one of the most striking is, is uh, judges uh, making decisions. It is sort of out there. People have heard of this. But can you just run us through what judges tend to do? Lots of biases there, which we which we may or may not be familiar with. Some of them get a lot more attention than others. What we've been studying with the example of judges is actually the way those uh, biases of judges are going to produce what in the system looks like random effects. And in fact, what those biases are going to create is noise. So noise is the opposite of a bias. It's a mistake that is unpredictable uh, in, at, at the end of the day. Let me give you an example of that and illustrate the difference between bias and noise with the example of the judges. So you, you've got a courthouse where you have Judge X and Judge Y. 
Judge X has a reputation for being lenient and Judge Y has a reputation for being tough. That's their bias, right? They've got a different bias. Maybe Judge X is uh, a bleeding heart judge and Judge Y is a tough on crime judge. On average, the level of the sentences that these two judges are going to pass is going to be different. So you could say that these judges have a bias. Relative to the average of judges, one of them has a lenient bias and the other one has a severe bias. But if you are a defendant and what is going to assign one of these judges to you is essentially the luck of the draw. It's randomness. The fact that you're going to get one judge or the other is going to be a function of chance. It's a function of you know, the, the luck of, or, or, or the bad luck of getting one of these two judges. And that at the level of the judiciary system is a source of random error. It's a source of what we call noise. So different biases between different people are going to create what looks like randomness and what is in fact noise. And just to understand this uh, fully, so if, if you get this case which people cite of a judge before lunch tending to reach different decisions, so all judges before lunch on average tending to reach different decisions than judges after lunch, uh, you know, one's more lenient, I can't remember which way I ended this, one's more lenient, one's stricter. Is that bias or randomness? That is noise too, and it's a different type of noise. So I was just describing to you the noise that comes from a system in which you can be assigned different individuals who, are di who have different levels of biases. We call this level noise because the level of the average judgment of your two judges is a source of variability. It's a source of unwanted variability. No one designed the judicial system thinking that it would be fine if a big influence on what the outcome is going to be was the, the luck of the draw. That is clearly not intentional. That's not what you know, the, the, the framers of the constitution or, or whoever designed the judicial system intended. It is clearly unwanted variability. There is another form of unwanted variability, which is the one you're talking about now, which is that Judge X, the lenient judge, is less lenient before lunch because he gets a bit grumpy. He's also less lenient when it's a very hot day. He's also less lenient when he's in a bad mood because, for instance, his football team lost yesterday. We All, all these effects are quantifiable, they are documented, and they're a source of what we call occasion noise, which is the fact that each of us is different from one occasion to the next. When the same problem in this, in this example, the same defendant in the same case is shown to us at different times, we're going to have a slightly different judgment. So we have differences in the level of the judgment between individuals, in the average level of the judgments, that's level noise. And we also have within judge variability, which is what we call occasion noise. And there is a third type, which we can come back to later, but these are two of the three types of noise. Uh, why don't you tell us about the third now? You can't leave that hanging there. <laughs> <laughs> I suspected you would ask for that. So the third type is this. If you present 100 cases to judge X and judge Y, the lenient judge and the tough judge, and you ask them to rank them from the one that is the, the, the most punishable, most awful crime to the one that is the, the least uh, severe crime that deserves the, 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 the least punishment. Clearly, the, the level of severity that they have on average is going to be different because they have a different level. But the ranking that they are going to give you of these 100 cases is also going to be different. Maybe Judge X, in addition to being more lenient on average, 
is especially lenient with first-time offenders, and on the contrary, less lenient than he tends to be with, say, white-collar criminals. And maybe for Judge Y, it's a completely different set of preferences and choices. So the pattern of judgments that these two judges are going to have is different. It's not just the level, it's the order or the pattern of their decisions. And that's what we call pattern noise. And pattern noise really reflects the fact that we are different people with different histories, different preferences, different experiences of what we've done right and done wrong and different lessons we've learned. And because of this infinite variety in the people that we are, in the personalities that we have, in the histories that we've lived through, we are going to make different judgments when faced with the same evidence. Most of the time, that's fine. You know, if, we, if, if, if you ask me who my favorite painter is, and I ask you who your favorite painter is, and we disagree, that's not a problem. But if we are in a system where uniformity is desirable, or where there is a correct answer, and we're looking for that correct answer, that is unwanted variability, and it's a problem. Um, unwanted variability, one of the most shocking things is, you, you talk about it in the book, being a single individual, like let's say a doctor, can reach a different diagnosis on the same evidence, you know, two months apart. So if you get, if you if you see some X-rays on the first of January, reaches one diagnosis. Same X-rays on the first of March, different diagnosis. Yeah, these examples of occasion noise are really striking. So you you take the example of X-rays. There is an even more striking one, which frankly never never ceases to amaze me. Forensic scientists and especially fingerprint examiners. If you show fingerprint examiners the same pair of prints, so the, the, the latent print which has been lifted from the crime scene and the so-called exemplar print which has been taken from a suspect, and you ask them, is this a match? And they tell you yes or no, or I'm not sure, basically. And you show them the same pair of prints a few weeks or months later, they don't always give you the same answer. Now, they don't very often disagree with themselves. Let's be clear. This is fairly infrequent. But we expect that they should agree with themselves all the time. We haven't been told, we haven't been taught to think that this is a matter of judgment. We, we have been told that this is a matter of fact. Either the fingerprint matches or it doesn't. That shouldn't vary from one reading to the next. Yet it does. And this is a a good illustration of the, the basic idea of noise, which is that wherever there is judgment, there is noise, and more of it than you think. In the example of fingerprints, you probably think, as most people do, that there should be zero noise, there should be zero variability, but there is some. On some other judgments where we fully expect some variability, for instance, when you're deciding between people you're trying to hire or evaluating the performance of your colleagues, we know that, that there is going to be some variability there and that in between two different evaluators, you're going to get different answers. It still remains very surprising when you show people the results, how much variability there is. It's typically a lot more than people expect. So basically, wherever human judgment is at work, you're going to find much more noise than you think and you're going to find that you hadn't thought about it and that you weren't paying attention to it. So far, you've been talking about individuals, you know, a judge, a doctor, a fingerprint analyst. Mm -hmm. if, if you've got 100 fingerprint analysts, it's different, isn't it? Tell us about groups and individuals. 
So this is a fascinating topic because it cuts both ways. If you take 100 fingerprint analysts, or let's say, um, uh, well, they, they're going to tell you yes or no, so it's difficult to, to, to get a clean average. But let's, let's take another example. Let's say um, you have experts in an insurance company who are setting prices for uh, policies. And you you show them a request that comes in from a customer saying, you know, I want to insure this factory against fire or whatever. And they've got to set a price for that. If you actually do the experiment, you're going to find that different underwriters, as they are called, these experts who set the prices of insurance policies, actually give you fairly different prices. On, on average, the difference between two randomly chosen underwriters in the same insurance company who quote you a price for the same exact case is going to be quite different. But if you take the average of 10 randomly chosen underwriters, two groups of 10 randomly chosen underwriters are going to give you a fairly close answer. Basically, the random variability between the individual judgments is going to cancel out when you take the average of a large number of people. This is a simple statistical phenomenon. It's sometimes called the wisdom of crowds. Because these errors are random, they will cancel out when you average out a large number of people. That's the good news. Now, the bad news is this. If what you do is you take these 10 underwriters and you put them in a room and you ask them to discuss the case and you tell them, you know, you guys seem to have wildly different opinions about how much we should charge this customer. Why don't you discuss it and figure out who is right? That seems like a good idea, right? I mean, that's what most companies would do. That's what most organizations would do. In fact, given a choice between taking a straight average of these 10 people and putting them in a room and having them discuss it, most of the clients I used to work with when I was a consultant would choose the second option. They would say, of course, it's better to have a discussion. And that's wrong. Because when you put these 10 people in a group and you ask them to discuss the case, you are going to amplify the noise because some of these people are going to be more compelling, more convincing. Some of them are going to be louder. Some of them are going to be more senior and be in a position of authority and influence the others. And from one group to the next, these people are going to be different. So the group is going to amplify the noise. If you want to use the group to reduce the noise, if you want to really leverage the collective intelligence of the people who are composing your organization, you need to make sure that they form their judgments independently before you aggregate them and specifically before they start discussing them. So use the group to gather multiple different independent opinions, but make sure those opinions are independent. Usually organizations are pretty bad at doing that. Okay, so just, just to clarify that, you're saying a group can work as long as, let's say, the insurance brokers all come up with their own premium estimate, go to the meeting and try and defend their number and then discuss their number, rather than just having a generalized discussion where they haven't really thought it through before they go in. Exactly. And in fact, if you wanted to do this in the best possible way, I mean, in one of the best possible ways, which remains a fairly simple way, you would do what you just said, which is have them document all the reasoning for the price they are setting separately without any communication between them, then put them in a room and have them defend their point of view, then have them again independently put in a price and take the average of these 10 prices as your final answer. This way, you get both the benefit of the independent thinking 
and the benefit of the discussion because it could be the case that one of the underwriters says, oh, you're right, I had missed this point, you are so, you are so right, I was completely wrong, I'm going to change my estimate. So one of the reasons all this is so interesting is because what you research affects the real world. And you can, yeah, you can imagine you saying this to a business and a business implementing it and yeah, becoming more successful. Have, have, you, have you got experience of that where, you, where you've applied these ideas and it sort of worked? Oh, of course. I mean, let, let, let's, be, let's be humble with this. I mean, we, we have a lot of experience of applying it. Does it work or does it not work is a slightly tricky uh, topic because when we say a decision is a good decision, what we usually mean is that the outcome is a good outcome. Now, you know, let's take a simple example. Suppose you're making investments, right? You're, you're essentially placing bets. You're taking risks. No method, no technique is going to guarantee that all your investments are right. So before you can you know, conclude that your method is superior, you need a fairly large experience base where you can make a clean comparison between different decision methods. And we've got some evidence, you know, some early evidence that the kind of decision method that we're talking about that reduces noise, and by the way, also reduces bias, but the, the kind of decision method that we're using here, we're pretty sure it reduces noise. We're pretty optimistic that it will actually improve outcomes, but it's, it takes time to show. It, it, it takes time to demonstrate in a rigorous way. Now, here's what we know for sure. If you have two different people making a judgment, and there is a difference between these two judgments, and you think there is a correct answer. If these two people have two different judgments, one of them must be wrong. If two doctors see you, and one of them says you have disease A, and the other one says you have disease B, we know that at least one of these two doctors is wrong. A method that reduces the discrepancy between these two doctors, all things being equal, should reduce the errors in the diagnosis that they are making. I'm talking about doctors, I could be talking about investments, I could be talking about performance evaluations. The logic is the same. If you reduce variability, you reduce error. What you want to make sure you don't do is that you don't introduce a bias in doing that. You, you don't want both your doctors to be wrong. You would want both of them to be right, obviously. And you wouldn't want all your people setting the price of an insurance policy to set it unanimously at the wrong level. So you want to reduce noise and you want to make sure that you don't add bias at the same time that you're reducing noise so that you converge towards the best possible answer. So, so, so it just makes me wonder, what's easier to correct, bias or noise? It would seem that it's bias, but in fact it's noise. And let me tell you why. It's very simple. To correct bias, you need to know what the correct answer is. Take the underwriters again. Right? Suppose that you've got 10 underwriters and they give you prices for an insurance policy that are all over the map. Now, who is right and who is wrong? What is the true price of this insurance policy? You have no way of knowing. If you, have a way, if you had a way of knowing that, you wouldn't need the underwriters in the first place. If you knew what the, the true price is, if there was such a thing, a Goldilocks price that you can actually set, you wouldn't need to have all these experts. So the fact is, you don't know if the average of all their judgments is above the true price or below the true price. You don't know if they have a bias. Are they on average overpricing or underpricing? 
you have no way of knowing that on a specific insurance policy. Even if you wanted to fix that bias, you couldn't because you don't know if there is a bias. Now think about the noise. If they are giving you 10 different prices, you know there is noise. You know you have a problem. You don't need to know what the bias is and you don't need to know what the true price is to know that variability is a sign that they are not doing the job right, that they are not applying the same procedure and using the same data. If these people who are supposed to be applying the same tools and the same methods are coming to different answers, it means something is wrong. And that's a problem you can fix without actually fixing the bias. So it sounds a bit counterintuitive that you could improve your decisions without knowing what error you're making. But you don't have to know what your average error is to reduce noise. You can actually reduce noise without knowing if you have bias at all. I wonder if you could analyze one example which interested me because I've sort of experienced it, marking essays, which yes. you know, is quite a difficult thing to do. And one solution I found, and <laughs> you mentioned it, which was just putting them in order, you know, putting them almost on a table, one to 20, worst one, best one, and then doing the grading after that. Why is that a good strategy and why? It's actually a very good strategy. And there's, it's a great example, which I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will, will, will relate to, on which we, we can actually show many of the noise reduction strategies. So the first one that you could apply, which is what we're talking about in the example of the, of the underwriters, is have two or three or as many graders as you can grade these essays separately and take the average of those grades. And if you have a big discrepancy on one particular essay between two graders, have them discuss it to see if maybe one of them has completely missed a point that the other one has seen and, and wants to change his or her opinion. So averaging would be a first strategy to reduce noise. The second strategy to reduce noise, which a lot of people are using, is to structure your grading and to say, you know, I, I'm going to use a, a, a score on, on a score of zero to three the quality of the writing, and on a score of 0 to 7, the structure of the essay, and on a score of 0 to 2, whether the, the writer has checked the following three points that uh, should be mentioned. So the more structured your rating is, the more you decompose the overall rating into subcomponents, the less noisy it is going to be. So we've talked about averaging, we've talked about structuring, and then there is the strategy that you were talking about, which is to use ranking rather than actual scoring. The reason this is actually um, a denoising strategy is that it will take away what we've called the level noise. If on average, my grades tend to be very severe, I, I tend to give people a score on average that is you know, 40 out of 100. And your grades tend to be very lenient on average. Your average grade of the same uh, essays would be 60 on average. That is level noise. It's unfair that your students are going to be graded more, gen more, more generously than mine just because your average level is higher than mine. So if, we, if what we do instead is we rank our essays from the best to the worst, and we then use uh, a standardized scoring to reflect that ranking into a score or to simply use the ranking within a large group, we are going to take out the level noise because your average will be different than my average when you grade, but your average rank must be the same average rank as my average rank because we rank from 
number one to number 100. And there is only one rank for, for you and one rank for me. It's the same ranking. So that will take away a lot of the noise. Averaging is a strategy. Structuring is another strategy. Ranking rather than rating is another strategy. There are a few more, but you know that's that's a good start. And anyone who grades essay might want to consider some of these. Yes, well, that's very interesting. If you if you were running the Oxford Business School uh, rather than just being a, a very distinguished fellow there or whatever you are, uh, w- would you would you say that's the best way to assess students? Would be to do, use ranking. Well, heaven forbid that I should be in that <laughs> position, but. It it actually gives me an opportunity to raise an important um, issue here, which is that, yes, clearly doing all those things would improve the quality of the grading in the sense that it would reduce noise. One question you've got to ask yourself, though, is would it be worth it? Is it that important to reduce the noise in the grading of all the essays? And, you know, probably the answer is going to be quite different when I'm, you know, grading an average Uh, midterm and when we are talking about the entrance examination. There are some situations where the cost of noise is higher because the consequences are more important and some instances where it's less important. So when we're thinking about noise reduction techniques, we need to think about the trade-off between the benefits that we're expecting to get, which is reducing the cost of noise, and the cost of putting in place those techniques, which are not Costless. I mean, they, if, if, if you're going to have three graders rather than one, you're going to multiply the cost of grading by three. That is a significant investment. So on, on every you know, problem on, on which we are considering noise reduction, we need to think about that trade-off carefully. The reason I'm mentioning this point is not to say, you know, just to be clear, is not to say noise should not be reduced. Most of the time it should, and most of the time we don't even measure it. So the first thing to do before you can discuss the cost and the benefit is measure the noise so that you can know its cost. Do you have a view on whether it's more important and more valuable to correct noise than to correct bias? It depends what bias you're talking about. Let's be, let's be careful about this. If you're talking about the average bias in your grades, right? So you let's say on average one... One grader uh, grades between you know, has has an average grade that is um, you know, forty out of hundred. Another one gives grades that are sixty out of hundred. That's fairly easy to fix, right? You can you can simply say you know, from now on every grader should use the the following grade distribution. That's equivalent to actually using rankings rather than uh, ratings. You you force a distribution so that you eliminate that. So eliminating that bias is fairly easy, and it's you know, easy and important to do. If you're talking about the sorts of biases that many people have in mind when we're talking about biases, so the fact that you will treat different people differently because they belong to different groups, for instance, the, the fact that you will treat women differently than men, or you will treat people of a particular ethnicity different from uh, people of another ethnicity, that is clearly a source of bias that uh, matters a lot, and that should be um, you know, uh, tackled very seriously. You know, we, we, we are certainly not saying that this type of bias doesn't matter. This isn't average bias in the statistical sense. When you're thinking about your underwriters, the average bias of your underwriters, are they pricing too high or too low? That's an interesting question, but it's probably a lot less important in their case 
than the random variability on each insurance policy that they price. It just varies from one, one case to the next. And that noise is often much larger than average bias. If you're talking about um, the, the, the sorts of group biases that, were, that, that I was describing earlier, that's a completely different issue. And that's a very serious problem. And now then, a tricky question, I, I suspect, is you know, increasing numbers of decisions are taken by algorithms. Mm-hmm. So can you just talk us through how that works and how, this, how, how algorithms relate to what you're, you've been describing? Well, it's not a very tricky question. It's, it's a fascinating question, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's not that tricky. Algorithms have you know, many advantages and some issues. One of their main advantages, maybe their main advantage, is that they are noise-free. Algorithms don't have good days and bad days. They don't have a before lunch and an after lunch mood. They don't have a Friday afternoon when they're tired and a Monday morning when they're in good shape. They don't have days when they're grumpy because their football team lost the game. They don't make a decision differently because they just made three positive decisions and they think that now it's time to turn the tide and to make a negative one. Algorithms are consistent. They always make the same decision when they're given the same data. That is true of highly sophisticated algorithms. It's also true of very simple algorithms, of very simple back-of-the-envelope rules that you can apply to any problem. So as soon as you apply a rule, a formula, a model, or an algorithm of any kind to make a judgment instead of making a human judgment, you've taken out the noise. You've eliminated a big source of error. That's the big advantage of algorithms. And that is a big reason why they outperform human judgment in so many cases. The flip side, or the the downside of algorithms, are, however, uh, a couple of things. First, there is the problem of algorithmic bias, as we've all heard about it in recent years, which is a serious problem. Algorithmic bias, by the way, is usually not the bias of the algorithm. It's the bias of the data that the algorithm users, which reflects the bias of the people who have made the decisions that the algorithm uses to, to, to that, that is used to train the algorithm. So if, to take an example that has been well documented, you are um, building a predictive policing algorithm and you say, where should we send police to make sure that they catch as many uh, uh, bad guys as possible? And you do this based on a history that has over-policed some areas and under-policed others and over-policed some types of crimes and under-policed others, you are going to reflect and systematize the past biases that were reflected in your data. That is a problem. It's a problem that can be addressed, by the way. It's probably easier to address in algorithms than it is to address it in people when people make those decisions because you can test the algorithm, you can measure how biased it is, and you can actually fix the problem. But we should be very careful about that problem because it's a problem that, if not fixed, is a very serious one because algorithms, once they are in place, tend to benefit from a lot of credibility. Then there is another problem of algorithms, which is, in fact, just as severe or more severe, which is simply that we don't like them. If I tell you, hey, I've got news for you, you're... you're, uh, You've been arrested, and the, the, the good news is the judge who is going to see you is a machine. And the machine is going to decide whether you get bail or not. How does that feel? I, I wouldn't be happy. 
you wouldn't be happy, right? And almost no one would be happy. We all want to have a chance to speak to a human being. And we don't realize that the decisions of that human being have a big component of noise. We may suspect that the the human being has a bias against us or more rarely in our favor, but uh, we and, and that may be a wrong or a right suspicion. You know, that's another, another issue. But we don't realize how noisy the judgment of that person is. We don't realize that in the example of bail, for instance, a machine can actually make objectively better decisions than human judges. As human beings, we want to deal with human beings. And that is the main reason why we wrote this book. If, you know, if, if what we wanted to say was human judgment is noisy, let's replace it with algorithms, you know, the book would be about three pages long. <laughs> the, reason, the reason we wrote um, a, a fairly thick book is because what we're saying is human judgment is noisy in addition to being biased. We really need to improve it because for a lot of important decisions, we are not going anytime soon to be dealing with algorithms. We're not going to want to deal with algorithms anytime soon. However much algorithms improve, and they will, and however many decisions they make that they don't make today, and there will be many, there will remain a lot of decisions that we will not want to trust algorithms with. And for those, we need to improve the quality of human judgment. Right. So, bail, bail, but the bail one's interesting because presumably you can measure that in terms of do people abscond and that kind of thing. So you can actually measure whether the judge or the algorithm made a right decision. And yet yes. we would feel wrongly, probably, that a judge would be fairer, Yeah, that we could appeal to a judge and we could say, look, it's like this and I did this and I didn't mean that. Whereas if you're doing it with an algorithm, you just feel you were powerless. Exactly. A lot of people feel that. And a lot of us you know, would believe uh, that due process and the, 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 the good administration of justice requires that we deal with a human being. Now, we need to be aware that we pay a price for that. The price we pay for that is that some people go to jail who could have been uh, freed on bail and, and who would not have absconded, as you say, and other people are left uh, alone. And then are, 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 uh, other people who do get bail uh, get bail that they shouldn't have gotten and, and, and will actually abscond. And we would have avoided these mistakes with a better algorithm. It's a, it's a trade-off, and we, when, when we say we want to deal with the human being, we choose to make that trade-off. Now, I've read uh, this said, and I wonder what your view on it is, that, you know, and I take your point that you can correct bias in algorithms and that they have the advantage of being noiseless, but that algorithms amplify bias. <sighs> There is no reason why algorithms should amplify bias, but there is a very clear reason why you get that impression. And the reason is they are noise-free. Let's take a very simple example. Suppose you've got a racist judge. Right? A racist judge will send more black people to jail than white people, all things being equal. Now, you may suspect that the judge is racist, but it's actually quite difficult to prove that the judge is racist because he's seeing a lot of different uh, defendants and every case is different. And he can always come up with a reason to justify why he sent this particular defendant to jail and he didn't send this particular defendant to jail. There's always going to be a different story. And by the way, even 
a racist judge is noisy. He's not going to send every black person to jail and to let every white person walk. Now, if you create an algorithm that learns from how this person has made decisions and that try to, tries to extract the rules that your racist judge has extracted, the algorithm is going to be more systematic. The algorithm is going to be noise-free. And so, while the average bias of the algorithm will be the same, it will be more visible because the randomness will have disappeared. So it's not that the algorithm will be more biased, it's the algorithm will be more visibly biased because bias becomes much more visible in the absence of noise. Let me give you another example to make this clearer. Suppose that you've got um, a gender bias in the hiring system of an organization, right? And you are, on average, uh, hiring more men than women. Suppose that you replace your system with an algorithm that always, uh, you know, that, 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 that uses the same um, criteria that your people have used historically, that extracts those criteria from learning from all your past decisions. You've got good machine learning there. You're going to find something that is also more systematic, and you're going to find that in any sample of 100 people that you look at, you're always going to have something close to 60-40. It's not just that on average over a great many people you find that bias, you're going to find that bias even on smaller samples because you're going to have a lot less noise. So the, the bias will not be greater, but it will be more visible because it will be more consistent. That's the bad news. The good news is when it becomes this consistent, you can actually fix it. There is a reason why we speak so much of algorithmic bias. It's visible. It shows. Bias in human beings is a lot harder to see than bias in machines. So I'm confident that the problem of algorithmic bias, now that it's gotten the attention it deserves, will be tackled very seriously in the years to come and that we will be dealing with algorithms that are certified for uh, their, their, their absence of bias and that or, their, or the limitation of their biases, because how you define absence of bias is a tricky issue. Um, but I'm, I'm fairly confident that we will deal with that problem in a responsible way, at least for the applications that matter. Well, look, thank you for talking us through it. And you're incredibly clear in the way you explain uh, these ideas. And to, 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 just, one, just one last question, really. You know, wisdom of crowds is a bit of a crowd. Three is a crowd, they say, writing a book with three of you. Uh, all, of you all of you, you know, I imagine with very clear views and um, uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, you know, discussing things, but nonetheless, you must have your own uh, different stances. How difficult was that? Well, it, it, I'm, I'm not going to say it wasn't difficult, but mostly it was a lot of fun. You know, it, I've, I've written a couple of books, some of them alone and some of them in teams. And you know, writing a book as a team, I, I wonder why not many people are doing it. It's so much more fun than writing a book alone. Um, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, like getting feedback from your readers every day uh, before the book is even finished. Everything you, you write, you, you get feedback on, and everything one of the other authors writes, you give feedback on, and that's how you, you build and you improve the book uh, you know, as uh, as you progress, we we didn't split the book. There aren't chapters that are written by Denny or by Cass or by myself. Although obviously, you know, there there was a first draft of every chapter, but every chapter has the fingerprints of all three authors on it, and we hope it's 
you know, we hope it's a plus. We hope that has given us a chance to cover a breadth of topics that we otherwise wouldn't have covered. We've got justice and we've got recruiting and we've got psychology and we've got medicine and we've got you know, uh, a, a number of topics that one of us couldn't possibly have covered. Uh, and we also hope that it makes for you know, more robust thinking that has been more thoroughly challenged before it gets printed. Well, yes, although it just occurs to me, if you were following the, um, the advice you gave uh, for groups, you should have each come up with a first draft of every chapter and then discussed it as a group. You, you'd be surprised that, in fact, we probably each came up with many more than one draft of each chapter. <laughs> so we, we, did, we did eat our, our own dog food and follow our own advice on this one. <laughs> well, Professor, it's been fascinating. Thank you very much for giving us the time today. Thank you so much.